Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to compare Mormon and creedal Christian thought. Today, it's just me, flying solo. This episode, I know before we had recap and four things, this one's going to be a briefer recap and a ton of things. So I'd love to hear feedback from you guys, see if it's too many things, or perhaps it's fun to go around and see all these different things that can come up even in the brief lessons we've been through since last time. We've gone through only three lessons since the last recap. These ones cover Matthew 8, Mark 2 through 4, and Luke 7. Matthew 9 through 10, Mark 5 and Luke 9, and then Matthew 11 through 12, Luke 11, and then the recent one, so I guess that would be four episodes, uh, Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Luke 13. Here are a few things, some of which are just, if I may be honest, just kind of pet peeves. (laughs) We are going to get to a few of those today. But to start with a Christian creed, the Belgic Confession, Article 1 There is only one God, or one God only, one and only God. Here it is. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being, which we call God, and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Love it. Okay, where are we going to start today? We're going to start with Joseph Smith's comments on Mark 5. Interestingly enough, though though this is included in Joseph Fielding Smith's teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, I also want to point out something about Mormon sources that most may miss. So I've got... TPJS, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, and then I also have the words of Joseph Smith, which are were compiled and edited by Andrew E. Hot, Lyndon Cook. And um, in the same document, they even note in their footnote that this discourse is the only entry in teachings for which Joseph Fielding Smith did not provide a source. Interesting. I wonder why that... Could be. Well, we're going to see he edited it. <laughs> Left out some stuff he didn't like. Uh, <laughs> and so, here we are, 1841. I'm, we're going to go through the whole thing. I want you guys to get a sense of the type of sources that we're dealing with when we're dealing with Joseph Smith. And you'll see the mark, what was relevant to the, um, you know, the casting out of Legion, the, the Gerizim demoniac. Uh, in the middle. Okay, January 5th, 1841, Tuesday, Old Homestead. This is extracts from William Clayton's private book. So this is the complete account. So we have a description of Paul. He's about five foot high, very dark hair, dark complexion, Dark skin, large Roman nose, sharp face, small black eyes, penetrating as eternity, round shoulders, a whining voice, except when elevated. Then it almost resembles the roaring of a lion. 
And then you'll notice <laughs> Joseph Fielding Smith just jumps ahead to, he was a good orator, active and diligent, always employing himself and doing good to his fellow man. That's true, but he left out, he was a good orator, but Dr. Bennett is a superior orator. <laughs> so, students who want to learn about Mormonism, just Google John C. Bennett. Uh, any biography of Joseph Smith should cover it. Von Brody, any, any of them will cover him. And it is funny that um, <laughs> the description of Paul fits pretty much what John C. Bennett looked like. And um, he eventually would be excommunicated from the church in 1842 for stuff dealing with, you know, spiritual wifery, polygamy. Um, and uh, I think that's funny. So once again, when you even you get a Joseph Fielding Smith edited book, just realize that he's leaving out what he doesn't like. Sometimes he'll turn worlds into world, things like this. Well, we're going to go to the original and keep going. Um, answer to the question, was the priesthood of Melchizedek taken away when Moses died? Um, they note in the footnotes that this was John Taylor, who would be the third president of the church. All priesthood is Melchizedek, but there are different portions or degrees of it. That portion which, Moses, which brought Moses to speak with God face to face was taken away, but that which brought the ministry of angels remains all the prophets had the Melchizedek priesthood and was ordained by God himself. Joseph Smith continues, The world and earth are not synonymous terms. The world is the human family. The earth was organized or formed out of other planets which were broke up and remodeled and made into the one on which we live. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, William McIntyre uh, in the footnote, they, they note, indicates that the subject of ex nihilo creation was one of the major topics of discussion during this uh, period. So notice, the earth is organized out of other planets. Okay, The elements are eternal. That which has a beginning will surely have an end. Take a ring. It is without beginning or end. Cut it for a beginning, place, and at the same time, you will have an ending place. I, and, of course, forgive me, I'm, I'm just reading these notes, so the grammar is bad. It's not just that I can't read. <laughs> um, a key, every principle proceeding from God is eternal, and any principle which is not eternal is of the devil. The sun has no beginning or end. The rays which proceed from himself have no bounds, consequently are eternal. So it is with God. If the soul of the man had a beginning, it will surely have an end. In the translation, without form and void, Genesis 1, 1, right? Or 1, 2, rather. It should read, empty and desolate. The word created should be formed or organized. And then it says, observations on the sectarian God. That which is without body or parts is nothing. There is no other God in heaven but that God who has flesh and bones. John five twenty six. As the Father hath life in himself... Even so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. God the Father took life unto himself precisely as Jesus did. We're going to come back to that. The first step in the salvation of men is the laws of eternal and self-existent principles. Spirits are eternal. At the first organization in heaven, we were all present and saw the Savior chosen and appointed in the plan of salvation made, and we sanctioned it. 
We came to this earth that we might have a body and present it pure before God in the celestial kingdom. The great principle of happiness consists in having a body. The devil has no body, and herein is his punishment. He is pleased when he can obtain the tabernacle of man, and when cast out by the Savior, he has to go into the herd of swine, showing that he would prefer a swine's body to having none. All beings who have bodies have power over those who have not. The devil has no power over us, only as we permit him. The moment we revolt at anything which comes from God, the devil takes power. We'll come back to that. And then the last sentence, This earth will be rolled back into the presence of God and crowned with celestial glory. They note in the footnote that, um, that Brigham Young thought that the earth did not dwell in the sphere in which it did when it was created. We, we covered some of that before. That the fall uh, cosmologically probably was the earth that was created coming to this part of either the solar system or something like that. So let's go back to the first point. God the Father took life unto him so precisely as Jesus did and he has flesh and bones. I really like the footnote here, uh, of course, coming from editors that believe this, but I thought it was very useful um, that this is the first mention by Joseph Smith of the, the concept that God the Father once had a mortal probation and was resurrected with a body of flesh and bones. That uh, Jesus says, I only do what I saw the Father do, and that's how they interpret this as he saw his Father be a Christ in a world like this one. Um, they, they talk about this a syllogistic argument used today for Mormonism's concept that God the Father once lived on earth, on an earth, um, even though it wasn't consistently understood, and they give an example with Lorenzo Snow, who, of course, was the one who stated that as man now is, our God once was, as God now is, so man may be, and thus unfolds our destiny. So they, they say that uh, Lorenzo Snow himself uh, called the father and son spirits um, two years later. Um, and they say, especially since in 1839, Apostle Brigham Young told him not to teach the concept of a once mortal God until he heard the prophet Joseph teach it. Kind of interesting. Here's the syllogism they point out. That all men are raised with their physical bodies in the resurrection. And they cite that, Alma 40, 23. Jesus, the Son of God, in the great prototype, John 14, 6 through 9, was the express image of his Father, Hebrews 1, 3, and was resurrected with, Luke 24, 30 through 39, and retained, 3 Nephi 11, 14 through 17, and Acts 1, 11, his corporeal body, his corporal body. In the celestial resurrection, men can become gods, D&C 76, 51 through 58, Therefore, God the Father must have a body of resurrected flesh and bones that he obtained following his own earth life. So that is what they call the syllogistic argument that follows from this. Then, um, just something that just doesn't get called out enough, this quote about the great principle of happiness consists in having a body, this was in the um, Sunday, sorry, the, the seminary manual even recently, in one of these lessons. But think about it. Is it the devil that's actually cast out? No. It was demons. I think it's fair to um, 
say that they would be, of course, um, allied with Satan. Um, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. And Joseph Smith is not called out enough for this. Just blatant disregard for what the text says. Also, if all beings who have bodies have power over those who have not, what do, what do you make of the Holy Ghost? If the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit, though in one place at one time, um, do all humans have power over the Holy Ghost? If a having a body is required to become a god, how is one of the Godhead not having a, doesn't have a body? How, how did that happen? And then once again, uh, though we've seen how they get around it, Gordon B. Hinckley, for example, what do you do with the teaching that God is spirit? Even Jesus teaches this to the Samaritan woman at the well. I do think that this kind of view, and this, I'm, I'm speculating here, I'm curious what you think. If you have this view, and you have this view associated with your body, I think it's inevitable that it will make one casual and flippant towards spiritual things. And I'm not just saying um, the triune God, which of course they reject. I'm talking spirituality in general. You'll see in this culture, anyone living here can attest to this, that you know, you you bring up Augustine, you know, people might get bored, eyes roll or whatever, but if some yogi talks of some spiritual experience one can be had by some yoga that they claim is older than it is. A lot of people here are all for it and would see no sense of, have no sense of fear with dabbling in such things. Um, this is something consistent with Smith himself, of course. But anyway, I, that is one thing that uh, I wanted to cover. Let's move on. And I'm going to do this sound in between. Let's see how this works. All right. Aha. Number two, faith and fear. This one, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to overdo a point. But really quickly, in the seminary manual on Mark 5, they have quotes such as this from Neil Anderson, who's a LDS apostle. Fear and faith cannot coexist in our hearts at the same time. They then, later on in the manual, they have a section, Faith and Fear help students understand that faith and fear cannot exist at the same time. Now, they do cite, right, the, the verse in Mark 5, be not afraid, only believe. That being said, um, that's not all that Scripture teaches. They never, there's not a single line in the whole manual that talks about the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. talks about the fear of God relative to numberless scriptural stories, and not just all in the Old Testament. In fact, um, even the uh, stilling of the storm, uh, a couple commentators I read made the insightful point that part of them coming to... There's an interaction where Jesus calls them out for their faith, but part of what's going on is they go from fearing something they shouldn't fear, this windstorm, to fearing who they should, and that is God incarnate. 
That being said, uh, I don't want to go too far with that point. And uh, Brendan made some good points on this in our chat about this. Um, so let me recommend a few books on this. Uh, one of them, pretty recent. One uh, is a book called Recovering Our Sanity. It's How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us, Michael Horton. This is a great book. Um, great book. I'm going to read a couple lines from it here in a minute. And then there's a book that uh, was brought to my attention by Brendan uh, called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. I'm almost done with it. And then the third book is What is Faith by J. Gresham Machen. What is Faith by J. Gresham Machen. He makes a point in here, and I love this line, that, um, and of course at the time he's, he's reacting to the liberalism, that likewise downplays the fear variable. Um, and he says, Jesus did employ and insistently the motive of fear. And he talks about how a choice must be made between the real Jesus and much that bears his name today. And he's, of course, talking about those who would domesticate Jesus to just kind of this nice guy that just wanted us to, you know, smoke weed and weave baskets or whatever. Um, and he, he says, but who's right? Is Jesus right? Or are, there, are those right who put out their minds the, the fear of hell? Is fear altogether an ignoble thing? Is a, is a man necessarily degraded by being afraid? I think that it depends altogether upon that of which one is afraid. The words of the text that we have been considering with the solemn inculcation of fear are also a ringing denunciation of fear. The fear him is balanced by fear not. The fear of God is here made a way of overcoming the fear of man. I love that. I love that. So, I think there's a way we have to balance all of Scripture. And there is, uh, God is fearful, and it's not just uh, uh, respect is how it's typically told. It, there, that, that's true, but it's, the word fear has some more to it um, that isn't captured by just the word respect. I, I like, uh, Michael Horton says this, that, even in more conservative contexts today, the reading of a fear of God passage is often quickly followed up with an explanation, dying the death of a thousand qualifications. The upshot is that fear doesn't really mean fear. In such widespread dismissals, we are not only failing to give God his due, but are depriving ourselves and each other of the only antidote to the crippling fears that haunt us. The only way to conquer the wrong kinds of fears is to embrace the right kind. Fear really is worship. We fear what we believe is ultimate, what we think has the last word over our lives. The problem is that we fear gods that are not God. I love that. I love that. And he, he points out that in Greek, the word is often, um, does have a connotation of uh, dread, panic. Um, in, in fact, in Greek, the word phobos, we get phobia from it. Um, and it's, at the same time, it's connected with the sublime, this awe for someone who nerds out over extreme weather videos. <laughs> it's, a, a, I guess, a hint at this, right? Um, that, so that being said, there is a godly fear and there's a sinful fear, right? And we can also see this played out when how, how, with how people respond to God, right? 
do we further cling to Christ and his cross, or do we just, you know, vacate and ignore and uh, have something else fill that God-shaped hole that each of us has? Okay. Next. All right. One quick note. I this this deals with um, Oaks and his talk, the parable of the sower. He has in there uh, a diss on what he calls prosperity uh, or the theology of prosperity. I wanted to point out a couple of verses I've heard personally quoted in a way that reminds me of the prosperity so-called gospel, uh, contrary to what Oaks said. Um, one was DNC 6-7, where it says, Seek not for riches, but for wisdom, and behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you, and then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's the intent of the passage, but I could tell you specific stories of hearing it quoted in just that way. Similarly, this one uh, in Jacob 2, if I can get there. If you have your Books of Mormon, you can open it up. Jacob 2, 18 and 19, where it says, But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God, and after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches, if you seek them. And you will seek them for the intent to do good, right? So I just want to point out that it's interesting that he points out that concern, but doesn't call out even quotations of verses in their own so-called scriptures. Once again, scripture functions differently for them than it would for Christians, Jews, Muslims, believing Jews and Muslims. But I, I just wanted to point that out, that that happens, and I, I don't know. I guess I want to say on that limited point, I agree with Oaks um, and his point, but I just think the worldview issues make it me leery of agreeing even there. Similarly, when they talk about um, preparing your soil, this is something I hope was made clear in the episode we did on the parable of the sower. There is a sense in which we are accountable and soils are people. But once again, for Oaks, it, that's the entire point of the parable. Rather than dealing with the mystery of the response that's being taught through the parable, the whole point of the parable is to somehow make yourself good soil. This, um, I think, greatly exaggerates. It, it, it turns, it, first off, it's not only a works-based system, as we've seen many times, but it turns faith into a choice um, with the, the question being the opposite of what the parable of the sower is. Um, it's, it turns faith into something that these free will agents obviously should pick, and they, you know, the people that don't, there must be all these reasons and, that are residing within the individual. Um, there's a talk by Bishop Richard C. Edgeley. Of the, he's a first counselor in the presiding bishopric of the LDS Church. Here's, here's an example that I wanted to throw out there. Faith, the choice is yours. Choose faith over doubt. Choose faith over fear. Choose faith over the unknown and the unseen, and choose faith over pessimism. And once again, this faith has become a work 
itself. It's not a gift. It's not the Holy Spirit. And compare that to what even Joel Marcus points out on the parable of the sower, and pointing out that the very regularity of the pattern uh, that we see is, is indicates that what comes to fruition, where the, the word leads to fruit, is the fulfillment of a divine plan. Um, he says this, This suggestion is reinforced by the implicit logic of the parable. Soil is the way it is, presumably because God has made it that way. People are either able or unable to hear, depending on how God has fashioned them, 4.33 and Mark, as they were able to hear. Contrary to the way the parable of the sower is often interpreted then, its message does not become good soil. Good soil is good soil and bad is bad. The ground cannot change its own nature. The image indeed seems to be deliberately chosen for its passivity. He does go on to say, you know, humans are accountable, but once again, is that the point of the parable? It may be a point, but I don't think it's the point. And even where it's a point, I think the overriding principle has more to do with God giving the ears to hear, and that even in those who reject the gospel, there is some overarching design going on that even if we cannot see what that is. Okay. Let's see. Let's do the next one. Going along with that, at the very bottom of the uh, lesson in the seminary manual on the parable of the sower, they say, and they say this, making comparisons, compare the parable of the sower with 1 Nephi 8 and Alma 32, uh, specifically 1 Nephi 8, 19-34, and Alma 32, 26-43. Let's do that, all right? So if you have your Books of Mormon, let's take a look. 1 Nephi 8. Uh, as some of you will know, this is Lehi's vision. Lehi's vision. So, starting at verse, they, they say 19, but I, <laughs> we're going to do the whole thing, all right? Uh, we could start earlier, but for sake of time, let's start with verse 5, 4. Let's start in verse 4. But behold, Laman and Lemuel... I fear exceedingly because of you. For behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. Okay. Now, something to point out that's pretty interesting is this uh, Lehi's vision, pretty famous passage of the Book of Mormon. Uh, this is pointed out even um, by Fawn Brody. Fawn Brody. If you look at page pages fifty eight to fifty nine, that Joseph in the Book of Mormon is borrowing even from his own family traditions, and uh, we have in Lucy Max Smith's biographical sketches um, six dreams remembered in detail by Lucy, and this is one of them. <laughs> so. As we're going to get to, Lehi has this vision, and later his son Nephi will have this vision. Well, that's interesting because that parallels something that may have happened in uh, the Smith family. 
because this dream was said to be a dream of Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith's dad. And so where it says, you know, me thought I saw a dark and dreary wilderness, um, Lucy Mack Smith says, I thought I was thus traveling in an open, desolate field, which appeared very barren, describing the dream of her husband. And so I actually think that that is probably more the context of what's going on, not something actually happening in history. I will point out as well that uh, Lehi is one of those names that D. Michael Quinn thinks may uh, be associated with the um, magic worldview. And let's see here if I have it marked. If not, I'll just move on. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. And then I wanted to point out as well that the publication of Lucy Max Smith's recollections was one of the major issues between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt, uh, as documented in that great book, Conflict in the Quorum, uh, Orson Pratt, Brigham Young, and Joseph Smith by Gary James Bergera. And uh, Brigham Young was, of course, very worried about this publication. Um, and Orson Pratt's the one who uh, published it. And he did not think he needed official permission. I mean, this is the mother of the prophet, right? Well, Brigham Young was, you know, thought it was full of errors. Well, why? Um, maybe because it didn't go along with the narrative he needed for his own authority, perhaps. I'll leave that to you to decide after looking at all the evidence. Um, it is interesting that um, Brigham Young even thought that um, it was such a threat that he thought that the book was to be gathered up and destroyed so that no copies should be left. <laughs> and from this, we had supposed that not a single copy could be found in any of the houses of the saints. So, kind of interesting that it became such a big deal. Um, they, he points out, Bergera points out, that... Um, Later research has largely vindicated Lucy Max Smith's book. So, so much for all the errors that Brigham Young just asserted were there uh, because they complicated the narrative he wanted. All right, back to the Book of Mormon. Let's see if this teaches the same thing as the parable of the sower. And it came to pass that I saw... A man. So once again, he saw in a dream, in his dream, a dark and dreary wilderness. And it came to pass that I saw a man, and he was dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. And it came to pass that he spake unto me, and he bade me follow him. And it came to pass that as I followed him, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. What's happened here? By the way, I'm going to go with the text. I know how this is typically taught. Um, if you're LDS and listening, you might actually appreciate I'm trying to read the text for what it is. So, why does he need mercy? Why does this Lehi character need mercy after following this man? Because the man said, follow me, and he wasn't supposed to. The man led him into 
chaos. So he's praying for mercy to get out of it. That's often not noted. And even though the man was dressed in white robe. Can't help but wonder if this has influenced some of the temple depiction of the Lucifer figure, who is embodied in the temple picture, contrary to what Smith said, wrongly said, was Satan being cast, the devil being cast out of the demoniac, which that's not what Mark 5 says or Matthew 8. But anyway, um, it came to pass that I had prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large and spacious field. And it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. <laughs> make one happy. This is interesting. I, um, I couldn't help but think, man, where have I heard that phrase before? Desirable to make one happy. And it's from Genesis 3. <laughs> um, you know, Genesis 3 where it, it's... She sees the fruit, right? And uh, here's one translation. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be coveted to make one wise. And why is it translated coveted here? I thought this was interesting that um, to be desired, right? Um, that word is the word for coveted, as you find later in Exodus 20. So Genesis 3, in a sense... Um, by inspiration, is preparing the way for the, the command which prohibits the very desire for that which is not meant for us. Even before something taking, seizing has occurred. So desirable to make one, but here's the change. Not wise, but happy. I will point out um, as well that it's interesting that if you, if you look at Genesis 3 carefully, uh, the woman gives three reasons. Good for eating, so practicality for food, physical, delight to the eyes, aesthetic beauty, more emotional. Uh, the third reason will make one wise, potential for wisdom, knowledge, you know, spiritual. Only one of the three comes out of the mouth of the serpent, the Nakash. And I think that's Genesis's way of making it clear. Uh, it's This is not a case of just Satan made me do it. Um, we're perfectly good with finding reasons ourselves for the sins we desire. Okay. So Lehi sees a large and spacious field, and then he sees this tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. And it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit. So he goes, partakes of the fruit. And I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I ever before tasted. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white. We're going to come back to that, white fruit. This is um, something that some Mormon scholars will say is a bullseye. You know, oh, wow, he got something right. We're going to come back to that. To exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also. For I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. And as I cast my eyes round about, that perhaps I might discover my family also, I beheld a river of water. And it ran along, and it was near the tree of which I was partaking the fruit. Okay, so he sees the fruit. He goes, partakes of it. He then desires his family to. He looks and he sees this river of water that runs along near the tree. 
by which he's partaking of the fruit, from which he's partaking of the fruit. And he looks and beholds where the river comes from, and he sees the head of the river. So that might be a little different than some of the LDS paintings. Um, tell me what you think. And at the head, he sees his mom, Sariah, his brother Sam, or sorry, his son Sam, and um, his other son Nephi. And they're standing there, not knowing uh, where they should go. Um, trying to speed this up here. Maybe this would be a little better if, instead of just reading it all. And it came to pass that I beckoned unto them, and I also did say unto them with a loud voice. So what's his re- response to that? He wants them to come to where he is. He beckons unto them, and he cries, uh, says unto them with a loud voice that they should come unto me. Notice, not Christ. Come unto me, and partake of the fruit which was desirable above all the other fruit. And it came to pass they did come unto me and partake of the fruit. They just walk up to him, take of the fruit. Okay. Now, he's desirous that his other two sons would also come. And so he looks again at the head of the river, and he sees them. But they would not come and partake. He then beholds a rod of iron that extends along the bank of the river um, that leads to the tree. Now, interestingly enough, in the Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, version of this, um, it's a rope. So, And he then beholds this path, straight and narrow path. I might even say the word way, the way, which came along by the rod of iron. Notice, not exactly, but it's by it even to the tree where he's standing. And it then also led by the head of the fountain and unto a large and spacious field as if it had been a world, which is kind of a weird line. But I do think that's coming from the interpretation of the wheat and the tares where the field is the world. By the way, we're going to get to that parable if we have time today. So, and then he sees numberless concourses of people many of whom were pressing forward that they might obtain this path which leads to the tree where he's standing. And they did come forth and commence in the path which led to the tree. And it came to pass that there arose a mist of darkness, yea, a great mist of darkness, insomuch that they who had commenced into the path lost their way and then wandered off and were lost. Okay, so some were just looking for the path by themselves. And instead, the mist of darkness came up and they just got lost. But he he saw others pressing forward and they came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. And then they pressed forward through the mist of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron. And then they came forth and partook of the fruit. So they made it. So the clingers, when it came to the rod of iron, they make it to the tree, and they partake of the tree. But notice this. After they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. And Lehi then looks and sees on the other side of the river of water a great and spacious building, uh, in, as if it were in the air, high above the earth. And it was filled with people, young, old, male, female, and with really exceedingly fine clothes and attitude of mocking, pointing their fingers towards those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit, presumably these clingers, 
those who cling to the rod of iron. And after they had tasted the fruit, they were ashamed because of those who were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. Notice that. They cling to the rod of iron, they partake of the fruit, and it doesn't matter. They fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. It says, Now I, Nephi, do not speak all the words of my father. But to be short, he saw another group of people and other multitudes, right? And they caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. So these are the caught hold ones. And they depressed their way forward, continually holding uh, fast to the rod of iron. So the, the ones who hold fast, you have the clingers that make it, partake of the fruit, and fall away. Then you have the hold fast group to the rod of iron, and they came forth, fell down. Interesting, that's a detail. Not had. They fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. And he also saw other multitudes feeling their way towards the great and spacious building. Interesting, feeling their way. And it came to pass that many were drowned in the depths of the fountain, and then many were lost from his view, wandering into other strange roads. And great was the multitude that did enter into that strange building. And then when they did, uh, after they did, uh, enter that building, they point their finger of scorn at me and those who were partaking of the fruit also, but we didn't heed them. So the ones who survived the feeling their way toward the building after they enter, they're in the fine clothes, uh, old, young, male, female, and they're pointing at the people partaking of the fruit, that didn't matter to Lehi and the part of his family that just followed his voice. Now, um, to save time, this then happens to Nephi, and he gives uh, Nephi gives more details that we don't have in this chapter. Um, right, so I do think uh, the river of water is later called a fountain of filthy water, and the depths thereof are the depths of hell. Right, and um, it's an awful gulf separating. Uh, separating, and it's called an awful hell. The devil's preparer for it. Um, sorry, jump back and forth here. Do you hear those pages? Um, and it's also near the tree. Uh, verse 14, families at the head of the river. Notice, uh, they don't cling or hold fast to the rod. They go just by voice. And this is what I want to focus on as a difference. Um, the whole parable of the sower is the word incarnate delivering the word and analyzing the mystery of why the results are so varied based on the comparison of the soils and the reception of the word. Right? I mean, it's a word-centered thing. Here it is two-ish. This has a Gnostic element that I think is often overlooked. Lehi didn't use the rod of iron. His family didn't use the rod of iron. So even though later, a lot of people will, you know, talk about the rod of iron uh, leading to the tree being the word of God. Uh, uh, Nephi says to hold fast to it in 1 Nephi 15. Um, also notice the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 19.15. Um, you know, they, they will talk about holding on to the iron rod a lot in LDS culture. But notice, Lehi and his family don't. And they're not affected by the mocking either. It's almost like there's a higher way of doing it. 
according to this text. Okay, so the mists of darkness is later uh, interpreted as the temptations of the devil. And the great and spacious building is called the pride of the world. It's also called the vain imaginations and the pride of the world. So this um, is pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't think this is the same message at all. <laughs> In fact, he says, come unto me. It's weird that he's, he then has to cry for mercy in darkness in a dark and dreary waste for having followed a man in a white robe who came and stood before him, who told him to follow him. And then he turns around and does that to his family, but it's a good thing. Come unto me, come unto me. So, anyway. That's Lehi or Joseph Smith Sr.'s dream. All right. Now, this, the white fruit, the color of the fruit, I want to uh, do this uh, more quickly than I should, but this is uh, an area where many will say Joseph Smith uh, nailed uh, something. And... Sorry, just grabbing a book. I want to point out where they would point. A book called Temple Theology and Introduction by Margaret Barker. This is one spot. And I just want to give an example of what to look for when you engage with this kind of stuff. This could be its own episode. And if you guys want, we can do that. But if you look on page 89 of Temple Theology by Margaret Barker, she quotes a Gnostic text called On the Origin of the World. And we're going to take a look at some of this text. But it is interesting, it's under the section Tree of Life, and she said, The tree is fully described in a text which was part of a small Christian library, hidden in a cave in Egypt in the 4th century and rediscovered in 1945. On the origin of the world is usually identified as Gnostic, and this is me butting in because it is, uh, but texts such as these are full of temple imagery and traditions, and labels such as Gnostic and therefore heretical should not be applied with too much confidence. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but just read this text. Just re read it. And indeed, you can read it uh, out of the Nag Hammadi scriptures, edited by Marvin Meyer, who himself um, seemed pretty Gnostic to me, and therefore, you know, very, uh, I mean, they're very positive in some of their descriptions in this. So it's the most Gnostic-friendly collection I've found that's still scholarly. And we're going to see uh, how they describe it. So she quotes it, and at the end it says, uh, this, the line is, the color of the tree of life is like the sun, and the branches are beautiful. Its leaves are like those of the cypress. Its fruit is like a bunch of white grapes. Boom. So they say, oh, that's a bullseye. Now, more generally in Margaret's work, I do think there's an interesting footnote in uh, an essay called Holda's Long Shadow by Julie M. Smith in a Mormon book called A Dream, A Rock, and a Pillar of Fire, reading First Nephi 1. I do think uh, this footnote is worth reading about Margaret generally. Um, the sentence underneath which it, that the footnote is uh, at the end of talks about um, 
When as Huldah prophesied, calamity was poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the form of an attack from Babylon, there was debate as to whether it was as Huldah had taught the result of people's wicked idolatry or whether God was punishing the people for getting rid of their idols. So once again, Margaret kind of reframes this and, um, and sees that older Israel, which was more polytheistic, open to the divine feminine, um, had a heavenly mother, if I may talk of the way that people who quote her often talk, um, they'll see the Babylonian um, destruction of Jerusalem as still judgment on Israel, but for not for being too idolatrous toward those things, but for rejecting the things that made Israel what it should be. In other words, was the the reforms of King Josiah and others like him, um, cleansing the idolatry and therefore the, the bias of the Bible is correct, or is that the opposite of the truth and they're changing Israelite religion and therefore the judgment came because the so-called reforms were actually innovations. And part of the innovations, of course, is a strict monotheism in Margaret's view. Um, so the footnote says, See Jeremiah 44, 15-18. Interestingly, this viewpoint quoted disapprovingly in Jeremiah has been making a comeback among LDS under the influence of Margaret Barker, who argues that Josiah's reforms negated earlier more correct worship practices. There are solid reasons to dispute Mark Barker, Barker's thesis, not the least of which is that it requires taking the position that a vast portion of the Hebrew Bible advocates false religion. <laughs> so, kind of key. Uh, so uh, that's even uh, in a footnote from a Mormon believer. And uh, she goes on to nuance her point, but I just wanted you guys to hear that. All right, this text on the origin of the world, um, we do not have time. Let's see, we're 50-minute mark. We do not have time to go into all of this. But it is a Gnostic work. It absolutely is. And they, uh, in, in this collection I just mentioned, edited by Marvin Meyer, they assign it to the late 3rd, early 4th century in terms of composition, um, though some of it may come from 2nd century material. And if you read through it, it changes a lot of the themes in Genesis and if you know anything about Gnosticism, um, and rather than just rejecting uh, the Bible, they keep it, but they just say it's incomplete or has things a bit wrong. Sound familiar? Um, which makes it hard to deal with at times, because they'll say they'll claim to be you know the same text, but they just tweak it and. Um, but the the and you'll you'll see this in how Irenaeus deals with them and against heresies in about 180 A.D. He talks about how they use our terminology, but they def redefine everything, and um, and it's soul destroying in his view and ours here, uh, some of it. So <laughs> they um, they call the God of the material world, the God of this world, Yadaboth, which is a way of mocking. Uh, the true God, the God of the Bible, 
I know some of this is pretty dark, but you need to hear it. This is what <laughs> Margaret's like, oh, don't dismiss it too quick. Uh, you know, um, well, how about this? Y'all to both, once again, it's a pun on Yahweh, the sacred name. And listen to this. This is from the same text. After the heavens, their powers, and their entire government were established, the chief creator, remember the false creator that they call Saklas also, like blind fool, um, exalted himself, and he was glorified by the whole army of angels. All the gods and their angels praised and glorified him. He was delighted. He boasted over and over again and said to them, I don't need anything. He said, I am God, and there is no other but me. When he said this, he sinned against all the immortals who spoke forth, and they watched him carefully. When Pistis, um, who's Sophia, saw the impiety of the supreme ruler, she became angry. The impiety of the supreme ruler. If you recognize those verses, by the way, it's Isaiah. <laughs> it's the word of the Lord in Isaiah. And this text is saying, Yaldabaoth, upon making fun of the true God, and quoting Isaiah as foolish in his mouth. And then another divine being, she becomes angry, and without that being seen, says, you are wrong, Samael, which means blind God. I could go on. <laughs> there is so much in here uh, to say. No, I mean, just stuff that is not uh, child-friendly at all. But once again, talks about the chief creator being a fool, uh, using fear to scare Adam, but um, the Adam of light, you know, is is higher than the Creator God. You see, they keep this biblical story. They redefine everything. They claim a love of Jesus. Jesus appears in this text, uh, supposedly, and yet at the end, like literally, if you just look at the blunt truth of it, they see the Creator God of this world as truly the God of Genesis but he's an evil God. And the Gnostic secret is then is that in at least some people, there's a spiritual spark in them that makes them higher than that God. And that God, they put the mouth, in his own mouth words from Isaiah, words from the Lord in the Bible, and mock it. But supposedly, this is a great source for Joseph Smith having restored, what, original Christianity? Oh, come on. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I could go on. They, they laughed at the chief creator because he lied when he said, I am God, no one exists before me. They love mocking him for saying that. Um, you have stuff that... Um, you know, I better not go into, but just read the text, and there's some pretty incredibly obscene things in here. But once again, they reshape this whole story to where the fear associated with eating the fruit was, the serpent was right, <laughs> according to them. Um, and of course, that's from other texts as well. I'm just trying to give a big picture overview of some of these things. Um, and that, that, you know, they're just trying to scare them not to eat the fruit. Let's see, what do I want to focus on here? But, anyway, 
course, at the very end, the word who is above all was sent for one reason only, to announce what is unknown. That's Jesus to them. He said, there is nothing hidden that is not apparent, and what has not been known will be known. And uh, that could be coming from Matthew 10, Mark 4, by the way. And these people were sent to reveal what is hidden and expose the seven authorities of chaos and their godlessness. Those seven authorities of chaos are the, the archangels of the false god of this world that they say is the god of Genesis. And so they were condemned to death. So, anyway, that's the bullseye. Well, I think it speaks for itself. If you're loyal to the god of the Bible, I'm not sure how... You could ever, 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 ever see that as a source for biblical truth. Okay. It, Alma 32, I'll, I'll cover just really quickly without having time to go into all of it. Um, back to This is one I've been meaning to do an episode on, but just to, for the sake of covering it at least somewhat. Where is it? Here it is. If you have your Books of Mormon... Once again, they claim that, you know, there's synagogues and people are getting kicked out of synagogues. Ancient Native Americans were not worshiping the God of Israel in synagogues. Find any evidence of that. You're not going to find it. So once again, the context is not ancient America because this isn't an ancient text, unlike the Bible. Um, This is Joseph Smith, so he's more the context. And I think you see that in his view of faith, right? So he talks about this constantly, uh, jumping through this Alma thirty-two, starting with verse twenty-six in the manual. But if you go early, even earlier, verse eighteen, right, is this faith? And he talks about if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. So they contrast knowing and believing, which is very relevant to the LDS community. And then he brings in faith, right? Um, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge. Therefore, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. And once again, this contrast with faith and knowledge um, is had pretty much throughout. So he says, okay, um, if you will, and this is probably where they're trying to compare uh, with the parable of the sower. Once again, think about what the parable of the sower is. It says, be uh, per- faith that is not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words. You cannot know of a surety at first unto perfection any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. But behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you. So just want it to be true. <laughs> um, even until you believe in a manner, you can give a place for a portion of my words. And uh, he then compares the word to a seed. And if you give place to that seed, um, that a seed may be planted in your heart. If it's a true seed, if it's a good seed, and you don't cast it out with your unbelief, and you, will res- and you won't resist the Spirit of the Lord, then the seed will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel this swelling motions, you'll begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed. And I just want to say, isn't that ironic? And we're going to get to the wheat and the tares. Um don't weeds grow too? Don't weeds grow as well? So just because something's growing doesn't mean that 
it's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know. Uh, that apparently was not on the mind of this ancient white Native American. Um, now behold, would not this increase your faith that it's growing? Just the fact that it's growing. As if people could not be even more committed to a lie. There's a book uh, called When Prophecy Fails comes to mind. And um, it's just incredible, right? You have this UFO cult, and they make predictions because, of course, they are you know, mimicking cr- the Christian culture they're from as well. So they have a second coming, basically, of UFOs. Um, these um, scholars are able to study them and try to measure even their sense of commitment. Of course, the size of the group is a little easier to measure. And uh, so, you know, of course, you know, if you're on the edge of your seat, it didn't happen. And were people more committed or less committed to the group? In their opinion, more. More committed. And uh, by the way, that, that applies to LDSism, uh, even with false predictions of the second coming that have never happened. Now there, as Christians, we do say Jesus Christ will come again, but um, false, false prophets should be called out. So, once again, when it says, Oh, behold, as the seed swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, then you must needs say that the seed is good. Why? <laughs> Why? Don't weeds grow too? And isn't that the whole point of the wheat and the tares? That's one of the variables of the parable. The fact that, you know, they grow together. Now, behold, are you sure that this is good seed? I say unto you, Yea, for every seed bringeth forth unto its own likeness. Oh, okay. Therefore, if a seed groweth, it is good. No. That's not how it works. And uh, surely a Native American would have known that as well. And if it groweth not, behold, it is not good, therefore cast it away. No. As if, uh, uh, you know, people that follow this text are the only sincere people in the world. Uh, they have faith in something. Uh, no. Uh, you know, I don't think my experience, you know, validates anything, really. Um, it's a variable of the Christian life, but the claims of Christianity don't fall on my subjective commitment or, or the lack thereof. And uh, just because my commitment grows doesn't itself aid the credibility of the claims. It's, anyway, it's just, this is amazing. So, if you... Uh, and it, it more, it's just more of the same. So maybe sometime we'll go through that in more detail. But I think that is just the wrong view of faith as well. It reminds me of some of the errors in terms of the views of faith that started coming in into the conversation in, uh, you know, in religion about the same time as Smith was writing this book. Uh, compare that to, I already mentioned this book, J. Gresson Machen's What is Faith, right? Where he talks about um, far from contrasting with knowledge, faith is founded on it. You know, uh, it's the light by which I see. And by the way, that's true of science too. You, it obviously wouldn't it take faith in the method, faith in this in the process. You know, science doesn't prove its own importance. So, once again, that contrast with knowledge, I think, is just. Uh, wrong. Um, so, and once again, uh, faith as the Reformed, uh, with the Reformed distinctions that have helped clarify it, when faith is used 
especially in that context, context, it's notitia, which is what we know about Christ, a census, which is a conviction that those things, you know, that we understand or know are true. And then fiducia, that's the trust and reliance. That's the I trust in the I trust in him. So that it, it's faith isn't con, you know opposed to knowledge. It's the foundation of it. And more could be said there, but I think that that's not just new. Uh, that you see that in Augustine as well. Okay, let's move on. Whoops. Well, we're going to leave this in. All right. We're almost there. Parable of the Wheat and Tares. I wanted to show that this, this is another example where Smith just is not called out enough. All right. I don't mind a little Bach at a minute, at an hour and five minutes, by the way. Let's see. There we go. Parable of the Wheat and Tares. This has often been used in LDS lingo and teaching to, as evidence for the apostasy that the tares are, uh, this is Joseph Smith, right? Both priests and people thus being bound up by their creeds and their bands made strong by their priests, right? They are prepared for the fulfillment of the saying of the Savior, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, etc. Um, yeah, if you look at the seminary manual, as I pull it up, let's see, Matthew 13. Let me get this right one. There's a heading that says, let's see, the, the one truth we can learn from the parable of the wheat and tares, is that in the last days, the Lord will gather his people. Notice, so there has to be a gap that's not found in the text. There's just a gap um, that they say as the apostasy, and then it's restored through Joseph Smith, and then the parable can be about what it was actually about. (laughs) In preparation for the second coming. It's incredible. So the whole focus of the seminary manual is the gathering of Israel. um, And according to Nelson, that... Uh, the church is the Latter-day Covenant Israel, and that the gathering is on both sides of the veil. So that includes temple work and all of that. I think it is um, interesting. Bednar uses a quote that says, The prophet Joseph Smith declared that in all ages the divine purpose of gathering is to build temples so that the Lord's children can receive the highest ordinances and thereby gain eternal life. Of course, where is that in the parable? Uh, it's not there. So, here's here's the thing as well um, that that is interesting. Uh, and David Ridges notes this: the Joseph Smith translation changes the order, changes the order, uh, so that the um, wheat is, or sorry, yeah, the wheat is gathered first, not the tares. And you see that in DNC eighty six as well. If I can find this. Where you know the whole thing is based on it. Verily I say, the field was the world; the apostles were the sowers of the seed. But the Lord saith unto them, Pluck not up the tares while the blade is yet ten, uh, tender, for verily your faith is weak. Lest you destroy the wheat also. 
Verse 7, Therefore let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is ripe. Then ye shall gather out the wheat from among the tares. So it flips the order. And after the gathering of the wheat, behold and lo, the tares are bound in bundles, and the field remaineth to be burned. And um, it, it is interesting. There's, there's almost um, a rapture feel to another DNC verse that I'll put in the show notes. So, um, this this is a little weird, um, especially even in Mormon history, right? Um, just generally, they claim this as evidence for the apostasy, but the whole point is that the kingdom is here. That's what the parable is addressing, is that the kingdom is actually here, even in spite of the problems we see within it, the imperfection, the even the enemies work within it. Um, it's, it's just amazing to me that, you know, you know, uh, a parable of the present kingdom is used as a proof text for an apostasy or a falling away of that kingdom. So a couple interesting things about this is that, you know, almost all commentators think that the tares or Darnell is a, it's a weed called Zazania that um, looks very much like wheat, may even be related to it, um, but it carries a poisonous fungus. So if, it's, if it is harvested and ground together with wheat, the, even the resulting flour is ruined. And, I mean, this apparently was still um, an issue that, you know, people would sabotage the field of their enemies. So you, you have even Roman laws uh, prohibiting acts such as we see uh, in this parable. And so, you know, a couple points that I think is interesting about the parable, without being able to go into too much um, detail, that the primary teaching of it is that the kingdom is present despite the presence of evil, and that the evil will be dealt with at the judgment. Right, that you know, even his saying the kingdom has become like is no accident. Right, it's it's arrived, and like a field with both wheat and weeds, which will one day be separated. So the how is that evidence for an apostasy? Um, now, of course, I don't think it means be passive toward evil. Um, no, the, the what's the question the parable is answering? How can this be the kingdom if evil is present in it. And um, the point is, evil won't always be there. It won't always be there, right? So, it's a reminder that Christians shouldn't be surprised or unaware of the fact that evil is active at the same time God's reign is. But the kingdom comes, to, to quote uh, Snodgrass here, the kingdom comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world. The new age has dawned in the midst of the old, but the old is not removed, at least yet. The issue is, at bottom, one of identity. From which reality will we take our identity, the evil of the old age or the righteousness of God's new age? If we take our identity from the kingdom of limitless grace, how will that identity be lived out? God is still sowing a people, and we are called to respond. So, I like that. I like that. But that is then used 
and twisted as well. All right, a couple more things. Is the church the kingdom? In their manual, they say, the church is the kingdom of God. Uh, well, that's a little interesting because that was not always the case, uh, even in Mormon history, right? So let me read you this, uh, this quote by Brigham Young, where he says, The kingdom grows out of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it is not the church. And uh, for those who know uh, a little bit about the Council of Fifty in the Nauvoo period, um, this was also known as the Council of the Kingdom of God. Joseph Smith set it up, and the whole di- I, you know, idea, by the way, he was elected king or something like that in the minutes of the meeting, was to usher in the millennial reign of Christ. Indeed, uh, it was to set up a political kingdom um, that may even be what's either left left over after the Native Americans were supposedly going to overthrow the American government or whatever, but it was going to usher in the millennial reign of Christ, and it was even called with terms like theodemocracy or whatever. But the idea was the kingdom was the political side of the world rule, whereas the church was the church side, the ecclesiastical side. So that was not always true. So it's interesting that um, even when the Joseph Smith Papers Project is releasing, has released, or been the means by which the Council of 50 Minutes are released, um, they're still claiming now that the church is the kingdom. All right. Bednar, in his talk, uh, bear up their burdens with ease. We, we went through this talk in some detail. And, of course, it's, you know, he t- interprets, come unto me and I will give you rest as, come unto me and I will give you, you know, more work. And that's a good thing. He says in here, um, if it will open, and uh, while I'm waiting, he, he interprets DNC 21 as a revelation that Jesus's birthday was April 6th. <laughs> and this is a just an interesting thing. Uh, so we have no evidence in in early Mormonism that it was ever interpreted that way. Um, it, this this is what the verse says: the rise of the Church of Christ in these last days, being one thousand eight hundred and thirty years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regular being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. So uh, they interpret that as it being revealed, and this app is not opening, so I can't read Bednar's quote. I will put it in the show notes. But he interprets that as April 6th is Jesus' birthday. Well, there's an interesting article called Dating the Birth of Christ by Jeffrey Chadwick. And he shows that early LDS, even Joseph Smith himself, never interpreted the wording of DNC 21 to suggest that April 6th should be regarded as Jesus' birthday. It was seen as a key day um, for the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ. But Brigham Young, John Taylor, Lorenzo Snow, none of them see this. 
And Orson Pratt did have a guess as to when Jesus's birthday was, and he doesn't interact with this um, at all. Um, he says that it, he thought it was April 11th, 4 BC. Um, but Talmadge did not saw DNC 21 as, um, you know, actually revealing something. B.H. Roberts, a later general authority, um, and very famous one um, in the early 1900s, thought DNC 21, uh, 20 verse 1 did support a year 1 BC birth date. And then I've, I've also got here uh, messages of the First Presidency, where one of the First Presidency in 1901 did mention April as a, as a month that he thought Jesus could have been born in. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, none of them think this, but now that Bednar's saying it, I wonder if it's going to be seen as doctrine. So if I quote this, does that mean it's doctrine? Of course, uh, as we're going to get to, and the last thing I want to talk about, uh, the <laughs> taking advantage of you know, this kind of ambiguity between what's a doctrine, what's a policy. You know, anytime you can just point out endless number of quotes from presidents of the church that they don't consider doctrine or whatever, um, they're going to say, well, it's never been approved in this and this and this and this and this. And just ask them, is family a proclamation of the world doctrine? And, or, you know, there's so many loopholes in this that you could almost create an official doctrine any way you want. And that's that's something that be, should be pointed out, um, that Mormonism is often a mirror to those who uh, believe in it. Okay. So what, what about the birthday of Jesus? Um, we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, the December 25th date is not a pagan day. Um, This is uh, one of my pet peeves, actually. Uh, the calculation, which should be distinguished from the celebration. Um, no, we have uh, Hippolytus's um, commentary on Daniel. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about uh, whether a word means con- conceive, that is the conception of Jesus, and whether it means birth. But the birthday of Jesus was always seen as um, connected to the passion of Jesus, because there was a belief at the time, whether it was right or wrong, um, it's not the point, that a great prophet would be conceived on the same day of his death. So if you could find the date of the crucifixion, it was seen as the day he was conceived, nine months later, would be the birthday. And March 25th became a prominent day. In fact, um, we have... Uh, March 25th being taken as the historical date of the Passion um, by, you know, a few names in the early church, as I'm looking through here. Um, And I will put this in the show notes as well. Now, one day as well was seen April 6th, which is interesting. But once again, it was seen as the Pascal date, right? From the, it was the date of the Passion. So, it was nine months later would have been the birthday. And that's why the 12 days of Christmas are from December 25th to January 6th. Um, so, and, and by the way, for those who want to say, well, it's Sol Invictus, it's Sol Invictus Day. Um, well, in fact, uh, 
evidence we have of the worship of Sol Invictus, the festivals of Sol were on, what, August 9th, August 8th, August 9th, August 28th, October 19th, December 11th. So that's a little bit different than what we often hear in online world. Um, in fact, one scholar, William Teague, he points out that the um, two temples of the sun celebrated its dedication festival on August 9th, the other August 28th. And in any case, none of these cults, old or new, had festivals associated with solstices or equinoxes. Some of this is just a misunderstanding of uh, religion in the Roman world. Um, a scholar who's definitely not a friend on, uh, say, the birth narratives of Jesus, to be clear, but he is an excellent scholar of, of pagan thought and pagan history, has a history of the witch, for example. His name's Ronald Hutton. He even points out in his book, uh, The Stations of the Sun, that the <laughs> if anything, if so, anyone's copying anything, um, it might be going the other way around, that there had, in fact, probably not even been a pre-Christian celebration on December 25th. So this is not as obvious as people will often say. Now, in terms of the actual birthday of Jesus, I, I don't... No, I think the most um, interesting analysis I've seen was in a book called Calendars and Chronology by, I think it was Roger Beckwith. But I will point out, and uh, he did pass recently, and he makes an interesting argument, uh, and I'll leave it to the audience to see if they agree. Um, Michael Heiser, in his book Reversing Herman, uh, thinks that the birthday was September 11th, 3 BC. And he has a lot of interesting arguments for it uh, by taking Revelation and seeing it as something that was actually seen in the sky for the birth of the Messiah. And uh, says that the combination of astronomical science produces a unique set of circumstances that can only be accounted for by one date. And in point of fact, a 90-minute window on that date. Um and he shows that it had dramatic significance in the Jewish calendar of the time, and that was September 11th, 3 B.C. Put that in the show notes for your consumption, but I just wanted to point that out, and I'm going to end on a quote uh, that I think is very relevant to this, this idea of, oh, it's just the sun. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff online about the sun being actually the actual sun and, you know, all these parallels from the ancient world and the astrology and whatever, whatever. Well, I'll read you what Pope Leo the Great had to say about that. All right, one last thing here. All right. This one is uh, going to be a pet peeve as well. Just a pet peeve. Just hear me out. <laughs> I, this is so incredible to me. There was a recent episode of The Interpreter that I just found is such an example of how 
dishonest apologetics can be. And I just want to say this to the Christians out there, that if you talk to someone who's left the LDS church and they, they see apologetics as a completely negative term, this is the kind of thing they, that they have experienced as apologetics. Um, and, I, you know, I'm sure there is poor apologetics on the Christian side of the line too and should be called out as well, but it's not definitional in my experience at all of Christian apologetics in the way that it, it has been and continues to be apparently as of February 19th, 2023 on the Interpreter Radio Show when it comes to even Mormonism's own history. Um, to try to make it short, uh, quick, I do want to point out that with the Journal of Discourses, these are a lot of early Mormon sermons, Brigham Young on, uh, 26 volumes. I have every copy. But just to show, uh, for example, in volume 8 on the inside, it says the Journal of Discourses deservedly ranks as one of the standard works of the church. And every right-minded saint will certainly welcome with joy every number as it comes forth from the press as an additional reflector of the light that shines from Zion's hill. This was written by a general authority. Um, there, Brigham Young taught several times that if he had a chance to um, edit something, it was as good as scripture. He, I mean, he says this many times, you know? So it's, you know, this is not, um, when, when we point out these early leaders and what they taught sometimes for decades, like in the case of Brigham Young, for, you know, 20, 30 years, and he's not the only one that believed it or taught it. This is, if they can just flippantly say, this isn't doctrine. What is doctrine then? What is? It's unbelievable. <laughs> so they will say, oh, Martin Tanner, and I'm going to call him out by name. Martin Tanner, you are either incompetent or a liar. If he says, oh, I looked up all these places where Brigham Young taught that Michael is God. That's what we're going to land on. They'll say Adam, God, that's fine. The Archangel Michael is Adam in their view. And that's Brigham Young and Martin Tanner's view. And he'll say, oh, just a few places in opinion. How about he taught it as a revelation? I'll put links to it. You could see this for yourselves. He taught it as a prophet in general conference. If we can't trust what he says in general conference, when can we trust it? Why have prophets if it's just you could be so flippant and throwing it out? He he says um, that it Joseph taught him it. He calls it Joseph's doctrine at one point. He taught as true. He um, he compared it to baptisms for the dead. You know, he said that um, that's why Jesus is called Son of Man, and he says Adam. You know, meaning the man. Uh, Jesus is Son of Man, so Jesus is Son of Adam. You know, um, how about this? Brigham Young, A Few Words of Doctrine, October 8th, 1861, in the Salt Lake Tabernacle, right? Where he says, some years, this is Brigham Young, some years ago I advanced a doctrine with, a doctrine, he calls it a doctrine, not an opinion, not a policy, a doctrine with regard to Adam being our father and God. That will be a curse to many of the elders of Israel 
because of their folly with regard to it. They yet grovel in darkness and will. It is one of the most glorious revealments of the economy of heaven, yet the world hold it in derision. Had I revealed the doctrine of baptism for the dead instead of Joseph Smith, there are men around me who would have ridiculed the ideal until doomsday, but they are ignorant and stupid like the dumbass. Yeah, that sounds a little bit more than just a few places in opinion. (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's just so, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then um, the lady, Chris Fredrickson, on this episode, she says, well, if he had just said he's a god, that would be fine. This is the lady who said, in my opinion, we live in a polytheistic society, but she's okay calling Michael a god. Interesting. Oh, okay. And then this other guy, uh, Bruce Webster, um, well, that it, that doesn't make sense. I mean, he would have put it in the temple. Guess what, Bruce? He did. It's called the lecture at the veil. <laughs> Read it. Like literally everyone that went through the temple when Brigham Young was prophet, in fact, he, he literally taught it himself at the veil to go into the celestial room. He taught it. I mean, it's unbelievable. He, I mean, there's, there's even evidence that he calls, um, you know, uh, him Yah- Yahweh. Uh, sorry, where, where is it? Um, anyway, there, there's even more I'll put in the show notes. Yeah, Yahweh Michael. There it is. He calls him Yahweh Michael. When Yahweh Michael had organized the world, for example, Michael or Adam goes down to the new world made, and there he stays. Um, here, even just in the first volume of the Journal of Discourses, right, you see this, where he gives this sermon, and he says, my next sermon will be for both saint and sinner. So for the whole world, I will tell you how it is. Our Father in heaven begat all the spirits that ever were or ever will be upon this earth, and they were born spirits in the eternal world. We were made for spiritual, afterwards temporal. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Now hear it, O inhabitants of the earth, Jew and Gentile, saint and sinner. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael, the archangel, the ancient of days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our Father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. Every man upon the earth, professing Christians or non-professing, must hear it and will know it sooner or later. This is a sermon delivered by President Brigham Young in the tabernacle, April 9th, 1852. He then, if you jump ahead, it is true that the earth, this is Brigham Young, that the earth was organized by three distinct characters, namely Elohim, Yahweh, and Michael, these three forming a quorum. And this was one thing Bruce said, you know, he's like, well, you have Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael in the temple. Yeah, you did. And guess what? Joseph Smith in the sermon in the Grove, or Lecture in the Grove, his last one before he was assassinated, taught that the, even using the Book of Revelation passage, even ignoring his fixing it in the JST to whatever, he then used the ambiguity he tried to fix in the JST to say that this was evidence that um, Heavenly Father has a father. And so many interpret it as the grandfather. <laughs> I mean, and once again, this is for decades. This is, I mean, my brother collected pages from Wilford Woodruff's journal as well. Um, I mean, this is, 
and I, you know what? There are people that still believe this that are in the LDS church. There, I know up until at least the 80s, there were general authorities that did, though they may not have said it. I mean, there were many that downplayed it, that privately taught it. So it, it, it's just funny because at the very end of this episode, he then says that, um, well, go to the new endowment. They all say, and encourage everybody to intend, attend this new endowment that's recently been released, right? Well, <laughs> it's just um, very telling that they'll say, well, it, it was in the temple. Well, you guys change the temple all the time. So it was in the temple and it was changed. I mean, that, <laughs> but I, I just think it's just astounding to still hear in 2023 people saying stuff like this, still denying it, not seeing how it connects, not seeing that he taught it as a revelation. Joseph's doctrine says people will be damned for rejecting it, declares it to the world, Saint Center like they're all going to know it. And even in the same sermon, says it talks about Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael. Okay. Deep breaths. I just have to say that. Martin Tanner, I'll leave it up to you guys. I have my own opinion. You're either incompetent or a liar. Brigham Young taught it. He taught it as doctrine. Okay. So as to not end on that, <laughs> last thing here. Pope Leo the Great. And this was uh, a sermon he gave on the Feast of the Nativity. And he's speaking of, of Christ. Therefore, in both natures, it is the same Son of God, taking what is ours and not losing what is his own, renewing man in his manhood, but enduring unchangeable in himself, for the Godhead, which is his in common with the Father, underwent no loss of omnipotence, nor did the form of a slave do despite to the form of God. You'll notice Philippians 2 in there. Because the supreme and eternal essence, which lowered itself for the salvation of mankind, transferred us into its glory, but did not cease to be what it was. And hence, when the only begotten of God confesses himself less than the Father, and yet calls himself equal with him, he demonstrates the reality of both forms in himself so that the inequality proves the human nature and the equality, the divine. Let me skip ahead a bit. The foolish practice of some who turn to the Son and bow to it is reprehensible. See, when the Son is likened to Jesus, this does happen. And, you know, there's a lot of references here. Um, and so th that's why people point to, point to one and say, see, see, it's, uh, you know, based on the pagan system or whatever. Most of them just have not read Malachi 4.2, which they many of the church fathers saw as Jesus fulfilling, right? That the day is coming that shall set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, right? For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, right? And, and so that's the son of righteousness. Um, but apparently there was an issue and so here's a bishop tr preaching to the flock and warning them about uh, confusing the Son with the Son of God, S-U-N with S-O-N. From such a system of teaching proceeds also the ungodly practice of certain foolish folk who worship the Son as it rises at the beginning of daylight from elevated positions, 
Even some Christians think it is proper to do this, that before entering the blessed Apostle Peter's Basilica, which is dedicated to the one living and true God, when they have mounted the steps which lead to the raised platform, they turn around and bow themselves toward the rising sun, and with bent neck do homage to its brilliant orb. We are full of grief and vexation that this should happen, which is partly due to the fault of ignorance and partly due to the spirit of heathenism, because although some of them do perhaps worship the creator of that fair light, rather than the light itself, which is his creature. Yet we must abstain even from the appearance of this observance. And I love that. For if one who has abandoned the worship of gods finds it in our own worship, will he not hark back again to this fragment of his old superstition as if it were allowable when he sees it to be common both to Christians and infidels? This objectionable practice must be given up, therefore, by the faithful, and honor due to God alone must not be mixed up with those men's rights who serve their fellow creatures. For the divine scripture says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And the blessed man Job, a man without complaint, as the Lord says, and one that eschews every evil, he says, Have I seen the sun when it shone, and the moon walking brightly, and my heart hath rejoiced in secret, and I have kissed my hand? What is my great iniquity and denial against the Most High God? But what is the sun and what is the moon but elements of visible creation and material light, one of which is of greater brightness and other of lesser light? For as it is now day and now nighttime, so the Creator has constituted diverse kinds of luminaries, even though, although even before they were made, there were, had been days without the sun and nights without the moon. But these were fashioned to serve in making man, that he who is an animal and clothed, endowed with reason might be sure of the distinction of the months, right? And then, Later on, awake, O man, and recognize the dignity of thy nature. Recollect thou wast made in the image of God, which, although it was corrupted in Adam, yet was yet refashioned in Christ. Use visible creatures as they should be used, as thou usest earth, sea, sky, air, springs, and rivers, and whatever in them is fair and wondrous. Ascribe to the praise and glory of the Maker. Be not subject to that light wherein birds and serpents, beasts and cattle, flies and worms delight. Confine the material light to your bodily senses, and with all your mental powers embrace that true light which lighteth every man that cometh into this world, and of which the prophet says, Come unto him, and be enlightened, and your faces shall not blush. For if we are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in us, what every one of the faithful has in his own heart is more than what he wonders at in heaven. And so, dearly beloved, we do not bid or advise you to despise God's works, or to think there is anything opposed to your faith in what the good God has made but to use every kind of creature in the whole furniture of this world reasonably and moderately. For as the apostle says, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hence, because we are born for the present and reborn for the future, let us not give ourselves up to the temporal goods, but to eternal. And in order that we may behold our hope nearer, let us think on what the divine grace has bestowed on our nature on the very occasion when we celebrate the mystery of the Lord's birthday. All right. Thank you so much for listening, for sticking with me. I know that was a lot. If you have any questions, uh, seek any clarifications, desire any sources, um, please reach out to us. Uh, we would gladly engage. If you have anything that you think needs to be corrected, um, uh, please please reach out to us as well. And um, we, if we get anything wrong on this podcast... We'll gladly correct it in the show notes, and um, if it's bad enough, we will say it in a future episode. But thank you so much for listening, and there's Bach. <laughs> <laughs>
The correct pushing of the button. Uh, thank you so much. And until next time, God bless.